The following content has been provided by RWTH Aachen University. So let's look at what a graphics library provides in terms of objects. Like what kind of objects can you expect from a GEL um, to provide you? On the output side, um, a canvas is a very typical thing. And a canvas is basically um, a memory area with, with a coordinate system and a memory to pixel mapping. It usually has a start address in memory, uh, a certain size, a bit depth, telling you how many bits per pixel you are using, uh, and then a logical arrangement in memory, uh, which is only relevant, uh, the memory arrangement, if you are talking about um, multiple bits per pixel. If you only have one bit per pixel, you're drawing black and white, and you just put one bit next to the other, right? It's very easy, line by line, um, you're filling your screen. But if you, have, if you want to do, let's say, grayscale, let's say you want to design a, a graphics event library for a grayscale display, um, you now need, I don't know, eight bits per pixel maybe for 256 shades of gray. That's not a book title, that's, that's a resolution. Um, and so at this point, you would now have one byte per pixel. So the straightforward approach would be to say, all right, I'll use the first byte of memory for the first pixel, then I'll use the second byte of memory for the second pixel, right? That, kind of makes sense, um, and that makes, that's perfectly fine. That is actually sort of the, um, the way you would do it <coughs> if you have uh, the Z format. So basically we're saying the first pixel at the top left will actually have not only one bit, but it will have one, two, three, whatever, you know, eight bits uh, stored consecutively in memory at that location. And once we're done with all the descriptions for that one pixel, we move on to the next pixel, which is then stored in the next uh, part of um, the memory. This is great because it's very easy to access an individual pixel. Right? You can get to uh, a pixel simply by computing the offset in memory, and you know exactly where all the data for that pixel is. If you wipe out that byte, the grayscale is set to white, right? or black, whatever zero represents. However, there's also different ways of doing it. Uh, let's say we have um, a color screen. How much? data do you need per pixel now? What do you think? One pixel on the color screen? One bit enough? No. Could eight bits be enough? May maybe, yeah, it's a def def definitive maybe. Wh why maybe? Um, I remember old computers using 200 and, uh, with 65 colors, mm -hmm. but um, nowadays, well, mostly we use uh, for this we uh, output colors uh, one byte. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. And for the um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, red. So so the first way you were describing, you had like one byte to describe, and you could use two hundred fifty-six different colors. That already tells you it was basically just a hack uh, using essentially what we what what I just described for the grayscale system, right? Where you say, okay, I got one byte. 256 different values. Uh, I can easily map that to grayscale, obviously, but I could also say that these different numbers actually are representing different colors. That only works, however, if you've got somewhere else, you've got to store, store a table that says, oh, 173 means, I don't know, light pink, right? So you need to actually have a definition of what that means. Um, if you actually want to store a full color in every pixel, then you need more like three bytes. Of course, you could do it with less, but then the resolution gets, you know, the color resolution gets very low. So typically, three bytes, one byte per color 
So a red value, a green value, and a blue value that each go from 0 to 255. And that gives you a very nice mix of colors. And that's exactly what you're doing when you adjust the color in Photoshop or in your desktop, in your whatever application, and you pick a color, right? You've got these three bytes that describe it. That's exactly the kind of stuff I'm talking about here. So now you've got three bytes. And there's, there's a different way you could store that. You could put all these three bytes next to each other in memory for the first pixel and then continue on. But you could also say, I'm going to put the red bytes into one plane of, of memory, and I'm going to store all the data for the red channel, if you like, in, uh, consecutively. And then I'm going to start somewhere later in memory. I'm going to start with the green and then the, with the blue stuff. If you do that, then the data for one pixel is distributed over pretty sort of you know, far, um, far away places in memory. But the beauty of that is that you can easily work with just the red channel. For example, if you wanted to um, create an effect where everything sort of all of a sudden you know, has no red color in it or the red component of the colors is being wiped out or changed or, or highlighted, you could just work on that part of memory. And that would be the XY uh, format where you store consecutive bytes per plane, which gives you very easy access, for example, to a single um, color component. All right, so those are things that you will think about um, if you design a graphics library, like how do I actually store this data for, um, for stuff. And um, another thing that the graphics library needs to provide is stuff you can output, right? I want to ask the graphics library, draw me a line, right? I don't want to, anybody ever take a class where you learn how to compute the pixels that would make up a line? Sort of how you do that, the Bresnahm algorithm, does that ring a bell at all? No? Yeah, okay. Computer graphics, was that? Yeah, exactly. So if you really, really want to, you can figure out how to draw a line, how to, you know, if you know you want to go from here to there, and this is the pixel resolution, you can find out which, which pixel you need to set, and then you can anti-aliasing and all that kind of stuff. But not really something you want to deal with at any level above, you know, the very basic uh, graphics library. So the graphics library hopefully provides that for you. So it will give you elementary parts like lines, circles, or raster images you know, that you can basically just give to it and say, please draw this for me. And you don't have to tell it every single pixel of a line like how they would have to slowly you know, um, level up in order to, to do a, a, a diagonal line. Uh, it's something that you don't want to worry about. You tell it to the graphics library and it does it. Um, in you know, this is, this is, um, these are elementary parts. And then, of course, um, more complex parts would be typically break, broken down by software into elementary objects that you render. And a good example are fonts. Um, if, you take a, uh, if you take the old school way of doing fonts back in the days of, you know, early uh, Windows systems, then actually fonts will be stored as raster images. And... Um, I remember times when you had to actually load the font and then you had to think about, is this a font that works on the screen or is it a font that gets printed? Because the printed one had a much higher resolution than the, the screen font. Um, so in this case, they would actually be stored as raster images at a particular resolution. So if you have a font that looks great at 72 dots per inch, a typical screen resolution um, for a long time, then you know, that would not look great by, on printout. It would look very, very rough. And also, you couldn't just take a six-point font and just you know, blow it up by 200% and get a 12-point font because it would look really ugly. Typically today, uh, fonts are broken down into vector images. So if you actually look at a font description, it, it is basically a little 
instruction on how to draw it. It, it says, you know, draw a line, then draw a busier curve from here to there, and then draw this kind of line and fill this area with black. So it's, it's basically defining um, vector, vector definition, a mathematical description of how that uh, letter is supposed to be composed. Um, this is, of course, very scalable. You can just, you know, double it up and you get a letter that is twice as big, but it still gets drawn at the maximum resolution because you have a vector description. But it's a little slower than having it stored as pixels. And finally, uh, and, and this is, uh, you know, we're having brief excursions here in different areas. Uh, this is a second excursion. Um, actually, it doesn't work typographically from an aesthetic point of view to simply blow up a font if you want a larger print size. Uh, the reason for that is that if you take a, uh, if you take a normal font, like a 12-point font that you're you know, using in a, in, a, in a letter or something, and you blow that up many, many times, um, it will actually look kind of weird. You know, typographers and typesetters back in the days of, of, printing, uh, of printed typesetting found out that the, the human eye needs different balances and different stroke thicknesses based on the physical size of a character. So purely uh, you know, scaling them up arithmetic, uh, arithmetically isn't actually typographically correct. It will look weird. It will not look like a pleasant um, typographical appearance. So what actually happens is that modern type fonts will have hints in them that say, as I get scaled up to a larger size, reduce the thickness of this you know, line or increase the thickness of this line so that it still looks pleasant to the human eye. All right, so this is, a, this is an output object, you know, or these are the kinds of output objects you would expect, lines, circles, um, letters, like fonts and stuff like this, raster images. Um, then there is the graphics context. Um, the graf this is a very typical thing of a graphics library, but it's also a little weird. Um, the easiest way to imagine the graphics context is to think of it like um, a palette of a painter. What this, the graphics context contains is the state of the mostly virtual graphics processor. So it basically says, what are the current drawing settings that I'm using to draw? Why does that make sense? Um, imagine you're writing a very, very simple graphics library, and that graphics library has a command to draw a line. What would you have to have as parameters when you call that line? Uh, you'd have to tell it from where to where. Let's say we're doing pixel-based, right? So we have just, you know, 0, 0 to 150, 150. That's great. But now you also need to tell it what color. You know, black, red, whatever you like. You need to tell it what thickness you want that line, whether it's just, you know, a single pixel or, or multiple pixels wide, etc. So all of these things you would have to provide. Now let's say you draw another line right afterwards. Again, you would have to pass all these parameters into that call. Imagine you're drawing a complex image with lots and lots of lines. Every single time you're drawing a single line segment, you're passing all these parameters down into the graphics event library. That's a lot of data you're shuffling back and forth. You know, uh, if you're drawing um, a, a complex image, it might be like you know, millions of lines, and every time you're telling it, oh, I still want to draw with black, I still want to draw with black. That doesn't make sense. And since most things um, that get sent down to the graphics library are lots of commands for drawing, that use the same color, the same line thickness, the same graphical attributes, um, people came up with the concept of the graphics context. The graphics context says, you tell the graphics element library once, and that's why I compare it to an artist's palette, use this brush. 
use the black brush in this thickness. And now I'm going to give you lots of drawing commands. And until I tell you otherwise, do all those drawing commands with that brush. That's what the graphics context does. So it allows you to once set certain attributes, like the uh, line width or the color that you're drawing with, also for fonts, for example, to tell it which font to use, which size, which color, etc. And then you send it lots of things that it draws, and it always uses those same parameters. Um, and that simply reduces you know, hugely the number of parameters you need to send in there. Uh, this is not always provided on this level, but many graphics event libraries do that. You should have had a chance to take a look at the, um, the article or the book chapter on the new system that reviews sort of Windows systems. And this, in some part, talks about these components and how they differ between different Windows systems. So this is why you can then basically just send a command like this, draw the string turtle at you know, uh, the following co coordinates, and all the settings are already known to the graphics event library, and it doesn't have to get them with every single command. Now, um, let's look at the actions. We now know the objects that the graphics event library provides. Let's look at what kind of actions we can actually use on the, on the GEL level. Um, obviously, you want to have actions to render, to draw all these things that we just talked about. Right? You know, if the graphics event library provides a circle, you want a command to draw that circle. Um, for this, there's something else that we need to uh, sort of wrap our heads around. And this is the sort of the drawing mode in which graphic event libraries work. There are three memory modes that we can distinguish. The first one is the simplest one to think about. You tell the graphics event library, draw something at this location. And that's probably the way that you would have implemented it if you didn't you know, think about it any further. And, and you, the graphics event library draws it into the, at that location, into graphics memory, so it appears on the screen. And then it immediately forgets about what it did. So it, it has no recollection of what it just did. That would be your normal implementation, right? You get a call, you do the thing, you wait for the next call. That's direct or immediate drawing mode. So you tell it, all right, I need this, I need this, I need this, and you draw all these things on the screen. That's great. But the problem with that is that you are basically, um, how should I say this, uh, not remembering what you, draw, what you drew. So if you want to ever restore parts of this, then you have, have trouble getting these things back because you have no recollection of what you did. Um, a different way of doing this, and that actually originated back in the days of um, uh, sort of oscilloscope-like screens, uh, was to use a command buffered or structured during or display list mode. And what that did was basically you told the graphics event library, um, I, need to draw the I need you to draw the following thing. And it would actually remember the commands. It would basically create a list of commands and hold on to that list of commands and execute it in order to draw the picture. But then it would still know what it just did. This is, of course, uh, more complex. So if I wanted to draw you know, this rectangle, I could basically fill those pixels and be done with it. Or I could say, draw a rectangle in brown and, and remember that command. This is more complex, but it's very efficient if you have sparse objects. Why? Because um, if you have a graphics event library that basically just takes the drawing commands and puts them into a screen buffer, then it always needs a screen buffer the size of that screen. Right? So every single pixel 
um, the graphics event library needs to keep by itself and draw inside and then pass it onto the video memory. So you basically have two copies uh, because you, you can't rely on the video memory to just hold on to this, so you need to be able to restore it later. If you instead remember the commands you used to draw, that might be more efficient if you have just a few commands. You say, like, I did a line here, I did a line here, and a line here. Those were the three commands that I sent, so you can recreate these at any time. Now, um, when you do this drawing, uh, there's also the option of saying, um, I'm going to hold on to what I drew in a parallel copy of it. And this is very nice and very efficient for dense objects. If I draw hundreds of, of, of objects into a, a memory buffer, the memory buffer stays the same size, whether it's full of objects or whether there's nothing in there, because it's just the objects are just changing pixels in that buffer. And that is typically something that you'll see in a lot of graphics libraries, that they will, if you draw something, they will draw it for you on the screen, but they will also put it into an off-screen region uh, as a backup copy, basically. And this is sort of the third way of doing it. Um, you could hold on to a command list of things you draw, or you could hold on to the a copy of the result of the drawing. Now, this raises the question of who has to re redraw. Let's take an example. Um, you've got the user is using an application on the screen. That, that application is rendering a beautiful picture into, you know, like this wonderful uh, picture here into, an, into a window. Now the user takes another window, his, I don't know, web browser window, and moves that over the original one, covers the original one. And then he takes it away again. So now at this point, your original window in which your application just drew this picture gets re-exposed. But who remembers the contents of what was there? Right? If any time any application asks to draw something into a window, you simply draw it onto the screen and erase what was there before, then the user cannot move windows around and uncover stuff because nobody will remember what was there. So you literally need to hold on to these things in case the window gets uncovered again. And the question is, who has to do that job of redrawing and remembering what was there before? The first mode, in, in the buffered mode, um, the GEL can do this. So in the buffered mode, the GEL has a backup copy of anything that it was asked to draw. So it just needs a trigger to be told, oops, our window here just got uncovered at this area. Please redraw the contents from your buffered copy. In immediate mode, the GL is dumb. It didn't remember what it drew. It just did it and then immediately forgot about it. Um, and the application itself needs to redraw. So that means the application needs to remember everything that it was drawing before. And again, if you're writing that application as an application developer, not as a Windows system developer, you got two choices too. You could hold on to anything you draw in a list of commands that you did to draw these things, or you could hold on to a backup copy of the contents of the window that you're drawing. It's your choice. So basically, we've got two things. Either the GL is redrawing, or the application is asked to do it, or any higher level is asked to do it. Um, there are some exceptions to this rule. Uh, the mouse cursor, for example, is always redrawn by the graphics event library. This is mostly for performance reasons, because the mouse cursor gets moved around all the time. And if you were, for every single thing that you move the mouse cursor, think about it, when you move the mouse cursor one pixel to the right, 
somebody has to remember what was under it before and has to redraw that part. Right? That's happening all the time, redrawing contents part of the screen. Um, and it happens so fast that you know, it, it, has to, it has to be very efficient so to be that fast. Um, this is often done by the graphics event library itself. So it will basically keep a separate layer um, and remember these things that are in, uh, under the cursor in that separate uh, storage area. Um, sometimes there is a separate um, actual, um, how should you say, a natural screen layer, so a natural memory area that is a complete empty screen that is just there to store the cursor. So if I know that, then I could put, paint the cursor in there. I can leave my original image untouched, basically, and then just render the two on top of each other by combining them um, with, a, with a logical combination operator. If I don't do that, then I need to remember what was under the cursor locally and, re and, and repaint it when I move the cursor around. Also, clipping, uh, which means you know, stopping the drawing of something at some border, for example, the border of a window or the border of the actual screen, is also done by the GEL, again, for performance reasons. So if a higher level um, application layer, like the base window system or even your application, asks for a gigantic circle to be drawn, um, and it's like way outside the bounds of the, the screen, then the GEL won't actually try to draw these things. It will basically just stop at the screen borders and not even compute the rest and then find that it's not on the screen. Um, by the way, for, for the bit hackers here, if you had to write a simple application or a simple algorithm that would be able to draw a cursor on a screen and then sort of remove that cursor again and draw it somewhere else, like you know, in the next pixel over when it's getting moved or something, how would you do that? What's the, uh, what's the very, very simple algorithm to, to create a cursor that's always visible? Because you've got a very colorful background, right? You've got patterns and white areas, black areas. Let's say, for, for the sake of simplicity, we're just doing black and white. We've got a black and white display. It's all, kind of, you know, all kinds of patterns. And you're supposed to draw a cursor that I can always see no matter where it is, so it cannot just be black or just be white, because otherwise it would be invisible. Um, and I want this cursor to be always visible, and I want it to be really, to be really easy to sort of draw and, and remove again. Yeah? I think uh, similar to the, the hands of the clock we had in Data S1, um, we can use an XOR function. Yeah, exactly. So, so it always invests a pixel, and you can do it again, um, and then it gets back to the Exactly. That's that what you do. You use the, use the exclusive OR function, which basically, logically, you can work this out at home with little you know, squares, inverts the contents of the screen. Because XOR means it's one if the two things are different, and it's zero if the two things are the same. Right? That's basically what defines the, the exclusive OR. Um, so in, in this case, if you apply an XOR function to, to a cursor shape and the background shape, it will literally take the cursor shape and invert it so that it's always visible against the background. And the beauty of that is if you do that again, it restores the original picture. So uh, somebody actually tried to patent that at some point, uh, believe it or not. This content was provided by RWTH, Aachen University.